Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. As I said in my newsletter today, I was actually tempted to sleep in this morning until I remembered that today's the day where our deeply unserious political class is going to decide whether to shut down the federal government in the midst of the pandemic or nihilistically trash the economy over the debt ceiling or or maybe kill Joe Biden's domestic agenda in order to save Joe Biden's domestic agenda or something like that. Um, and of course, I also knew that we were going to be talking with one of my favorite guests, the, the New York Times columnist, Brett Stevens. Brett, thanks for coming back on the podcast. It's good to be on my favorite podcast. I have to warn you that as a result of this uh, this life choice to come on the podcast, you will probably never be the attorney general of the state of Wisconsin. Um, you know, that was not, although my father, my father was a Badger class of 59. That was never probably in my life, my life's plan. Well, you need to, to cross that off your bucket list. I don't know. I just have to mention this, the notorious podcast scandal that's ruling Wisconsin, because it turns out this guy that's running for, I'm not making this up. Okay. This guy is running for attorney general of Wisconsin as a Republican. And it turns out that at one time he did a podcast with me. Oh, and this right wing site is making a big issue of this. Back in 2019, they write, Ryan Owens recorded a conversation with, this is a direct quote, notorious never Trumper Charlie Sykes, who is regarded as a traitor by many in the GOP base. Mm. Well, that's that's going to be a t-shirt. Uh, but it's va it's it's vanished. So it's vanished. So Ryan Owens is so embarrassed that he even talked to me that he has now deep six the podcast. And so just being talking with me is disqualifying. I just we need well, to know. You know but it's such a reminder that the Trump uh, the, the, the Trump true believers are the mirror image of the woke left. I mean, that's, that's right. That's cancel culture at its finest right there. And as you know, Brett, uh, I, I do regard you as something of a kindred spirit because, uh, I think you're probably disliked as intensely as I am on a bipartisan basis. So that's, hey. that's what, <laughs> that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> if you have all the right enemies, you've done something right. Well, that's right. And uh, just we have to remind people this is not this is not a safe space. So I want to talk about what's going on, this this madness with the debt ceiling, the, the nihilism of the debt ceiling, what's going on with this political game of chicken of progressive Democrats who really are going to. Uh, it looks like they're going to kill uh, Joe Biden's infrastructure bill in order to save something or other. We'll, we'll get to that. And I'm prepared for all the 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 pushback. But I, I, as I warned right before we started this, I, I have to wallow a little bit in the Corey Lewandowski story. Please do. Well, let me just w bring everybody up to, to speed, because if you woke up this morning, you find out that that um, Corey is out. He is, of course, he's the longtime Trump loyalist. He was removed from um, running this super PAC supporting Trump after a donor Trump donor, this is a crucial phrase here, accused him of basically a lot of handsy groping, uh, fondling, um, really, you know, drunken, uh, disgusting behavior. And he's being replaced by, of course, uh, the ethically challenged former attorney general of Florida, uh, Pam Bondi. Mm -hmm. As Tom Nichols says, when you're so toxic, the Pam Bondi is the upgrade. So, you know, we don't know whether whether Corey Lewandowski is is coming back, whether it's going to be part, will he be able to you know wiggle himself back? But I, th I thought that Maggie Haberman, your colleague, had a great sentence in, in the Times today where she's saying, uh, where she quotes, aides to Mr. Trump insisting 
this latest incident where he's sexually harassing and assaulting um, this, uh, this, this woman, this latest incident is different, particularly because it involves a donor to the former president. Ah, hmm. I see. Ah. So it was okay when you were harassing non-donors, but uh, yes, uh, this 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 gets in the way of of the flow of funds. Exactly. I mean, you can bottle thighs, grab you know what's and everything, but the megaverse has standards. When you start messing with the money, so there is that sort of interesting moment where you know Corey Lewandowski sexually harasses women, and and the, and the super PAC is shocked, shocked to discover that he's a pig, and. Of course, it's absolutely unacceptable and intolerable behavior for anybody other than the you-know-what-grabber-in-chief himself. <laughs> so it's just... But, you know, here's what I wanted to just to bounce off you. What I was thinking about was, you know, this pattern of the kinds of people that are attracted to Donald Trump. I mean, until five minutes ago, Corey Lewandowski fit in easily into this Trump world moral universe, isn't he? And, 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 and Trump's managed to gather around him that's this collection of Corys. You know, what is, what is the dynamic, do you think? I'm sure you've thought about this. Why? Well, I think it's the same, it's the same dynamic um, as most cults. Um, I think that you could probably, um, I mean, I, I'm not a, a trained psychologist or um, much less a psychiatrist, but I think you could probably find psychological patterns to the folks who went down to Jonestown uh, uh, back in, in the 70s to um, the Nixium cult um, popping up also in the cult of, of Trump because it sort of defies logic. It's a cult of strength. Uh, it's, it's a cult where, where even when they're wrong, they're right, where ordinary standards of judgment or empirical evidence kind of uh, fall away. I mean, look, let me say something. I know plenty of people who voted for Trump through absolutely gritted teeth out of um, a set of considerations, which I don't agree with, but I, I understand were in some sense rational. And so I don't want to lump every Trump voter into the cult of Trump. But what I think you and I are talking about, uh, Charlie, is a particular kind of uh, true believer, a particular kind of fanatic, a person for whom nothing Trump does um, is ever evidence of anything other than his wisdom, genius, greatness, and so on. Um, and that's kind of the hardcore of of the movement, which I find so distressing because it's you know it's it's essentially irrational and it shares so many characteristics with other cults of personality that have popped up through history and that have usually had bad results. You know, and, and it is that inner circle. I mean, it's not just Corey Lewandowski, man. You have, you know, Steve Bannon, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Bernie Carrick. You have bigots like, you know, Stephen Miller and Darren Beatty. You have the grifters like Diamond and Silk and Dinesh D'Souza, people like Jason Miller. I mean, the list of people who have been, you know, drawn into this Trump world. And I think, in, you know, part of it is is pretty obvious. I mean, look, it's in return for fawning. The you know Donald Trump's kind of created this moral free fire zone, this this force field against accountability. So that if you're too dumb, corrupt, or sleazy for the rest of the world, it's not a problem. You can still be drawn into this particular world. So I mean, for kind of like Corey Lewandowski, I mean, he could shelter under Trump's you know amorality, but I guess it well, turns story, out. That, I, can I just say? Yeah, the, sure. The story is interesting. I mean, look, there are certain zones which become. Uh, 
shamelessness permission zones. That's right, not a very right. elegant way of putting it. No, that's it. good. That's well. That's what but, I was getting. You know, yeah. a, a college toga party. You know, um, uh, mm. cultures have a way of creating. I think the ancient Greeks or the Athenians had sort of a five-day bacchanal free-for-all uh, at set intervals uh, every every year, where sort of shamelessness became licensed, uh, if you will. And so this is a kind of a cultural phenomenon that goes back in history for, for a long time. And so it's not surprising in this sense that Trump has been so delicious to parts of the right because he's, at, he's, he's given, he is a permission slip, a one-man permission slip for people to exactly. give free, free reign to everything, to their worst impulses. You know, I'm sure there was a fair, there was a lot of kind of sublimated bigotry. I know there was a lot of sublimated bigotry kind of out there in the GOP, in the conservative ambit pre-Trump, right? But it it had enough of a uh, of a super ego, right, to understand that there was something something shameful about certain kinds of thoughts, so they would be re- suppressed. And what Trump said is, it's okay. Uh, yeah. um, I mean, it's not an accident that it was that first speech which was a kind of festival of bigotries that galvanized uh, his his candidacy. No, I think you're exactly I think you're exactly right about all of this. And I, and I, and I think that that is kind of the the it is, it is a really a feeling of of kind of liberate. It is a permission. It's a permission structure. So there's one detail about this story um, that also I want. I mean, we don't have to go through all the ways he was grabbing and groping this woman who's I'm, I'm, everybody on, on comments was trying to say. So her name was. Okay, I'm not making fun of her. Okay, I'm, I'm I'm just pointing out that this is not a typo. Her name is Trashell Odom. Trashell. Uh, I don't know what she would be for short, but you can't blame her for that because that's what her parents named her. Mm-hmm. We could devote an entire podcast to why why would you name your child Trashell? I I'm sorry, this, that's irrelevant. I'm nine years old, but the detail is part of her story. Is she felt intimidated because Lewandowski is sitting there, probably drunkenly, claiming he has control over the former president's orbit and can determine the fate of those around Trump. Lewandowski said no candidate receives Trump's endorsement without Lewandowski's approval. In the statement from Odom's attorney, Lewandowski is alleged to have said repeatedly he is very powerful and can destroy anyone, that he is close with Trump and can get anyone elected or can take anyone out. Whoa. Big mafioso wannabe vibes there. I mean, you, you want to talk about the? Yeah, no, I, mean, I remember my, my my one encounter with with Lewandowski when I was uh, deputy editor of the uh, editorial page of the Wall Street Journal was similarly sort of hallucinatory in its in its inappropriateness. I don't mean in a sexual sense. It was just a kind of a combination of you know bullying and trash talking simply to get a meeting with with Donald Trump uh, because we had insulted him. So he wanted to come and set us straight. Um, he's a he's a strange guy, at least in my 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 brief, my brief uh, experience of him. So um, you, you gave a shout out the other day in your in your conversation with Gail Collins, which, by the way, I love I love those back and forth conversations that you and Gail Collins have every every week. But you gave a shout out uh, to Martin Shkreli. 
Um, you well, I didn't give a shout out to him. It was a highly <laughs> ironic shout out. Let's let's just. I, I don't. Uh, you know, sometimes podcasts become they, they lose the wink. You know, so yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned him. Let's put it that way. Well, I, I've thought about him in the past because I, I think he is the most despicable, deplorable person that you've read about in the news. I mean, he's the guy, you know, that, that jacked up the price of these life-saving drugs by 5,000%. I mean, he is loathsomeness personified. But you know what? If he got the Republican nomination, they'd all line up behind him, wouldn't they? I mean, Martin Shkreli. Given this this moral free-fire zone, look, if Donald Trump could be elected president, you know, make the case why Martin Shkreli couldn't be. Well, uh, well, that's exactly. Right. I mean, the, the the difference. Okay, the the only difference is that Shkreli didn't get away with it, and that's yeah. that's another aspect of Trump's secret, which is that somehow Details. or other he he gets away with behavior that um, ought to have sunk him a long time ago. Whether it's just the mismanagement of his business or the grifting, swindling quality of some of his some of his uh, deals uh, to his uh, sexually. Um, I should say allegedly, just uh, out of caution, uh, predatory uh, qualities, um, uh, and and that's the other part of the permission slip, which is that he 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 is a he models uh, loathsome behavior that somehow uh, escapes the the arm of of people with a moral sensibility. So that's his other attraction. Where Shkreli, um, listen, he's he's doing time right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think maybe that is one of the, the Trump attractions. Look, look, he can get away with it. If he can get away with it, maybe I can too. So you had a conversation about a week ago with uh, right after the, I think the uh, Arizona fraud had just come out. Um, and the headline was, history repeats itself, first as tragedy, second as farce, then as God knows what. Yeah. So there has been this ongoing debate about how alarmed we should be. Where do you come down? Where do you put yourself on the alarmed meter? Oh, I'm super the, uh, alarmed. Uh, maybe okay. not quite. Uh, I haven't quite taken it to 11 uh, in the immortal words of uh, Spinal Tap. Um, but uh, I was very taken by Robert Kagan's uh, essay in in the Washington Post, if if you read that, about yes, you know, sure. essentially a, a coup in in the making. Um, there, there, there are two sides to my alarm. Uh, the first is that I think the Biden presidency is stumbling uh, mm -hmm. really badly, uh, uh, largely on account of uh, unforced errors. Um, and this is creating not only a, a, a political open, it's creating a political opening for uh, Trump to to make a return and and perhaps even even win. So I'm I'm scared about the trajectory of the Biden administration. This is putting aside just policy differences that I have with them. It's just it's just uh, an inability to execute that that concerns uh, uh, that concerns me. And but more seriously, the um, the January uh, the the stolen election lie has taken deep root in a large segment of the Republican Party. Um, and it's leading, among other things, to a concerted effort to um, to rig the system at the level of state officials so that the Rasp Raspenbergers of the world, those brave Republican secretaries of state who held held the line on election integrity uh, last year, are, are no longer going to be in power um, uh, at the next election. So that combination of a stumbling Biden presidency, a kind of a grand conspiracy theory, a kind of stab in the back conspiracy theory, 
and um, uh, and the the uh, a, a political effort to create circumstances in which Trump could steal an election. I think those three things are 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 deadly serious. So yeah, I'm I don't know, I'm at 9, but maybe not 11. Okay, I I am exactly where you are on all of this that as the Republican Party becomes more nihilistic and anti-democratic at that exact moment, the the Democrats appear completely committed to blowing themselves up. And so that's that's the worst case uh, scenario that that at a moment when Democrats say that you know we need to you know, we face an existential threat to democracy that they certainly are not acting like it. So you actually talked about um the need for the Biden to get your groove back campaign. What yeah. does Biden need to do? I th- this is this is how bad things are that when I saw um your that that comment about uh, the the Biden get your groove back campaign it did not you know no solutions immediately kept leapt to mind for me so one solution comes to mind for me and the template is the first two years of the Clinton administration um Clinton uh which was, ran a, which was a, a clusterfuck yeah um uh Clinton ran as a new democrat as or a new kind of democrat um uh he he promised that he wasn't going to be kind of same old liberal that uh, had been rejected with Mondale and Dukakis and, and Carter before that. And then he he moved very far to the left. I know this is history that's very familiar to the two of us, yeah, but yeah. I have to remind myself that that was 29 years ago. So a great many of your oh, listeners no, probably don't no. have a vivid vivid memory of it. Um, and, uh, uh, and so he got he, he moved, he, he swung left, and the biggest swing to the left was what was called Hillary Care. And it failed in the Senate. Uh, I mean, it just it just absolutely flopped. And what Clinton learned from that near death political experience was to swing very hard to the center. He, in effect, he remembered what he was elected for. And I think Joe Biden has to do the same thing. He he was Joe Biden was elected because he was supposed to be competent, because he was supposed to be moderate, and because he was supposed to be a unifier. And in the first eight months of his presidency, he hasn't been those things. So I'm hoping that a political shellacking now might sort of shake the, sufficiently shake the administration to remember, they're supposed to be governing from the center. That's what America wants Biden for. They don't want a guy who's going to try to be FDR in four years. So the shellacking, are you referring to the midterms or are you referring to this legislative Donnybrook that we're- I'm referring to it right now. I mean, right I- Right now, I'm, today. Yeah. Today, this week, yeah. So you have an open letter uh, to uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin saying that, you know, they can actually, this is, seems a little bit counterintuitive for a lot of our folks, I think, that uh, they should just say no and that they are the ones who might actually be able to save the uh, Biden presidency. And I'm guessing a lot of people are going, well, what do you mean? It, it's interesting to me, by the way, you know, how intense the attempt to discredit and attack Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin is. And a lot of it is very, very ad hominem. And it's it is as if in in many circles there's no desire whatsoever or no ability any longer to maybe think that hey maybe they have some legitimate points now they're being accused of not negotiating in good faith etc. But so make your case about why you think that Mansion and Cinema saying no might actually help Biden and the Democrats. Well, what it will do is it'll be a tremendous defeat for the left wing progressives that are currently holding a highly popular bipartisan infrastructure bill as, uh, as, as a hostage. So it does a couple of things. First of all, 
Um, it reminds the Biden presidency that its mandate is to is to govern from the center, to be a, a moderate blue collar presidency, not a not a Park Slope, uh, Berkeley, uh, 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 you know, white, lib white, wealthy, liberal uh, uh, presidency. Um, and uh, it it essentially I mean, it, it shifts power all the way towards towards the middle. I think this. Saying no to to these bills, or I mean, the solution that I proposed was find a way to pass a clean infrastructure bill, um, uh, get get uh, the get the, the the debt ceiling uh, uh, um, pushed up, uh, moved up unilaterally through through reconciliation, and then take the three point five trillion in social spending and disaggregate it. So let you know, let people vote on it a la carte. Joe Manchin doesn't want. Uh, a green new deal obviously he's from he's from west virginia uh cinema is very leery of some of the tax increases that come that would come with this bill she's from a, a low tax state i think it's a kind of a winning solution for the democrats and by the way that's what puts republicans on the back foot because then they're going to have to fight piece by piece why don't they want uh, you know, early childhood education or, you know, one part of the bill. Child tax or, credits. Exactly. One part or another. I just think it's much smarter politics. The biggest enemy to the, to the, the Biden administration faces obviously one adversary in the Republican Party, but it faces an equal adversary in its left-wing progressive Corbynista um, side. Uh, and it has to navigate between forgive the cliche, that Scylla and Charybdis, if it's going to be successful, and then saying no is the way to do it. You, you, you write, the likeliest way for President Biden to fail and for Democrats to lose their congressional majorities next year and for Donald Trump to return to the White House next term is for the spending bills to pass mostly as they are, a Democratic Party that abandoned its center, where many congressional seats are vulnerable, key point, for the sake of its left, where the seats are usually safe, is heading straight for the minority come November 2022. To put it mildly, that is not the conventional wisdom on the left right now. They are convincing themselves uh, that the way, the only way to survive is to go for the most aggressive possible agenda, to go for the whole $4.5 trillion omnibus package. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, their argument, and I hear this all the time, is, hey, you know, it's really popular when you pull this stuff. People love the idea of, you know, whatever it is, Green New Deal, um, uh, the, 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 the early childhood education. And then you have to say, yeah, that's like saying, um, hey, you, we can give you a free TV. And by the way, we're going to get you your own Tesla. It's only when you present the bill that people think twice about the real value of some of these some of these programs. And this has happened to Democrats again and again. And I mean, I, I can't believe that you need to they need to be reminded of what happened in, in 2010 with the 63 uh, uh, seat loss in in the House. Historic. Now, that happened, by the way when you had a popular and politically charismatic and politically capable president in Barack Obama. Uh, you don't really have that in Joe Biden. So if you think, well, it's okay, we'll take a shellacking at the midterms, but we'll bounce right back uh, for, for 2024, really with Joe Biden or with, uh, with um, uh, Vice President Harris, you really think those are going to be um, the people who are going to... Uh, 
win uh, win three years down the road? I, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I don't think so. So Democrats need to be very thoughtful about how they go about this because there's a history here and history has a way of repeating itself. You make mention of of the danger of inflation, uh, you know, and again, you know, we, we hear these people who talk, we, we hear uh, supporters of the of the uh, reconciliation bill who talk about how the individual elements pull well. But inflation is one of those things that just hangs over everyone, including swing voters and the working class. Uh, as you point out, in June, the inflation forecast was uh, forecast was three point four percent. It's risen to four point two percent. And um, I guess that's that. How concerned ought we to be about spending another four and a half trillion dollars on top of the six trillion dollars we've already spent for COVID relief? I bring this up because among the Democrats, the only person that I see talking about that is Joe Manchin. He's being filleted for it. Well, look, I mean, maybe because I have a particularly personal experience of inflation, having lived in a country that had close to 100 percent inflation, I understand perhaps more uh, at a gut level, how devastating even modest inflation uh, can be and how difficult it is to contain once the proverbial genie is is out of the bottle. But inflation is the thief of the working class. Anyone who depends on a paycheck for a living is is going to be have their savings destroyed by their by inflation. People who have money in IRAs, the value of those IRAs or 401ks are destroyed by by inflation. And, and Democrats are being nonchalant about this. I mean, they think that the reason we have an inflationary problem right now, uh, they, I should say, mm -hmm. some Democrats think yeah. uh, we have an inflationary problem right now, is that we have basically supply bottlenecks, right? I mean, uh, right. Uh, with lumber, stuff like that, it's kind of jacking up prices. But as soon as it's essentially the, their argument is it's an effect of the pandemic. But the other interpretation of inflation, the classic interpretation, is it's too much money chasing too few goods, right? If you have a big supply of money and not enough, not enough goods, prices are going to rise. That's the Milton Friedman explanation. There's also there are other details I should say I'm aware of the velocity yeah. of money and so on. I'm not going to I'm not going to get into a, a little lecture on inflation here. But if your theory is that too much money chasing too few goods in a in, uh, is is part of the reason, then injecting we've put in six trillion dollars into the economy on account of covid relief. We've had zero, you know, basically interest rates set at, at zero for years and years and years, free free cash. We're now going to put in another four point five trillion in infrastructure and social spending. How you don't get inflation out of that, I don't know. And inflation will punish whatever party's in power. So we're hearing that now the talking point that, but this actually doesn't cost anything. That this is zero effect on the deficit, so therefore ought not. To oh, that's have, just a okay. lie. I mean, you know, even Biden's own CBO, even his own officials, in the most optimistic of estimates, said the bill adds 1.4 trillion to the uh, overall debt. Now, that's a super optimistic estimate because it assumes that there is a kind of a, that there's, uh, you know, the investments you put in in terms of infrastructure sort of uh, provide their own kind of pay, pay, pay themselves back through, through uh, you know, the, the, the value of, you know, more roads or, or whatever, uh, whatever it is. Uh, 
my my sense is that that would be that's that's heroically optimistic, but the argument it adds nothing to the debt is just it's just an insult to people's intelligence. You raise the possibility that the pandemic might actually continue, and you know we've already spent uh, six trillion dollars on COVID relief, and and if the pandemic continues, it would most likely require further trillions of dollars in spending. And you ask, how does that square fiscally with the four and a half trillion dollar extravaganza? And then you have a really scary paragraph. This is what ought to keep Democratic leaders awake at night, along with the record spike in homicides an incoherent and chaotic policy on the southern border and the possibility that a ticking real estate debt bomb in China could be the world's next Lehman Brothers collapse. I mean, this is one of those moments where you go, OK, there, there are reasons, reasons to be prudent and reasons to be cautious and reasons perhaps not to try to jam through a transformative agenda with a three vote margin. Um, you know, in 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 a, in a hasty rush to satisfy the left wing of your party. Look, I mean, the point there. I'm not trying to blame Biden no. uh, uh, for the spike in homicides. I'm saying we're living in a really dangerous world in a very uncertain moment. This isn't some kind of placid 1990s era of uh, you know peace abroad and prosperity uh, prosperity at home. So he's going for this kind of progressive moonshot of social spending in an era where we might want to actually husband our resources uh, because we're going to face uh, potentially catastrophic challenges. I mean, you just look at, the, look at the markets and ask yourself, is this going to continue forever, right? Are we not potentially on the cusp of yet another 2008 moment where a company that none of us had heard of or few of us had heard of previously, uh, Evergrande, in China, a $300 billion debt bomb in the making could cause a global financial uh, pandemic, if you will, in addition to the, to the actual pandemic that we have. So it just seems to me, again, an argument for prudence. Uh, you know, I remember the George H.W. Bush administration, and, and, and Bush Sr. was always going on about this word prudence. You know, it's a good word. <laughs> it's a word that Joe Biden uh, could could make could make his own, and I just don't sense that in in this presidency, which is the as I said, it's the other thing that worries me so much. I want, I am not like McConnell in 2010, saying the goal of the goal of you know what everything he does is for the Obama presidency to fail. The goal of everything I'm writing is I I think America desperately needs a successful presidency under any political banner, and we haven't had one in years, maybe in decades. So. I'm rooting for it, but sometimes rooting for it means offering criticism, which is is not going to go down so well with the fan base. Yeah, well, this is the this this is the tough love uh, part of of the critique. Now, you did, you 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 mentioned this situation in 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 China. I just wonder, in terms of scale, when the American economy goes down, of course, it brings the rest of the world with it. Is the Chinese economy right now big enough to bring the rest of us down? If there is this debt bomb. In China, how how bad would the repercussions be for us? Well, China is the second largest economy in the world. And, you know, unlike the old Soviet Union, which was sort of had sealed itself off, uh, it is deeply connected, uh, not just in terms of um, trade in uh, merchandise and um, goods, but also financially connected to the rest of the world. Um, so. Uh, you know, could China survive the collapse of Evergrande? Yeah, sure it could. And, and it probably, it has the financial wherewithal to, to deal with that. But the problem that you have, as I understand it, 
is that Evergrande may just be you know, the proverbial tip of the iceberg in terms of the scale of China's uh, debt problem and the tie-in to, to overinvestment in, in real estate. Plus, you know, look, at the end of the day, it's a command economy uh, with, with capitalist characteristics, but it's still a command economy and it's subject to the same, uh, the, the, the usual failures of, of command economies, which is, you know, politically directed capital, corruption, um, you know, you name it. So uh, the, the analogy I'm thinking about, if you saw the, the show Chernobyl, Mm-hmm. You know, the, the problem with Chernobyl isn't simply that the, there was a meltdown; it's that the explosion blew the top, blew the roof off of the building. And and the worry with China is whether Evergrande or that plus other other debt bombs going off are going to blow the roof off off the Chinese building and spread financial contagion. If that happens, we're going to have a problem potentially every bit as serious as two thousand and eight. While we're busy spending like drunken sailors on a kind of a progressive utopia that suddenly we're going to discover we can't possibly afford. Let's talk about the border for a moment, because you, you did mention that. Um, I thought it was interesting that President Obama, former President Obama, gave an interview to ABC the other day and essentially said, you know, the idea of having open borders is unsustainable and said we need you know comprehensive immigration re- reform. Um He's always taken kind of a, I would say, and I, I say this as somebody who was quite critical of him when he was in office, but in retrospect, a rather centrist uh, approach to, to to the border. And he seems to be kind of nudging the Biden administration. Look, you have to decide one way or another. You either have to have open borders or you have to crack down on all of this. I mean, th- this is another one of those dilemmas for Joe Biden, isn't it? Because he's being pressured by the left wing of his party to you know open arms, be as compassionate uh, as possible, which is, of course, you know, on brand, but also he's being pressured to say, look, you can't have tens of thousands of people just flooding across the border because that is just a freaking massive gift to Trump world. Well, this is I mean, this this is what kind of blows my mind, because um, I mean, it's such a no brainer that you need uh, order at the border and order at the border begins with enforcement and it begins with various forms of deterrence against uh, effectively unrestricted uh, unrestricted migration. I mean, this should not be a hard call for any halfway sensible liberal, except that so many non-sensible liberals are now in positions of, of influence uh, in, in the Democratic Party. Now, I'm very attracted to my colleague Tom Friedman's line is something like, um, you know, a, 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 a big gates and a long wall, you know, mm-hmm. uh, now you can treat that metaphorically, you can treat that, you can treat that literally, but you need some kind of security because ultimately, if you simply have essentially an open border policy, we're going to have all of Latin and South America living in Texas within the space of, you know, five to 10 years or so. It's, it's, it's an unsustainable policy that invites a gigantic populist backlash by the way, of a very fascistic sort. And I say this as someone who is long on record. I grew up in Mexico. I speak fluent Spanish. My dad was a Mexican citizen. I'm a great believer in a a generous and open-hearted immigration system. I think immigrants are always net assets to society, whatever problems are involved. But come on. Um, And it's, it's insane to me that someone... This administration has not been able to wrap its arms around a problem that is not, I mean, 
they're not we're not asking them to 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 put a man on mars i mean these these are problems that have pretty clear solutions and so again it's just a matter of just pure political malpractice of kind of foolishly caving into an extreme left-wing base that represents nobody except the angriest voices on twitter i think this relates to this uh i, I don't think this is a this is a, this is a digression because it, it it occurs to me that that this country desperately needs to have a good faith, intelligent discussion about immigration, but also about race, and that right now we're at a moment where that seems to be impossible. So, what we're seeing is people like Tucker Carlson embracing the Great Replacement theory, which is raw racism. You can disagree. With, I don't think you'll disagree with me. I mean, it's no, I, I think Tucker Carlson is, is a malignant force yeah. in, in American life. So he's bringing the, the great replacement theory into the mainstream of American politics, or at least right-wing politics. And of course, using the border as an excuse to, to take this you know, white nationalist meme, um, you know, prime time. Uh, at, at the same time, though, we have this increased shrill illiberalism and I hate to use the word woke again, extreme, you know, liberalism of the anti-racism folks who, um, again, it, it seems that their goal is often to, or at least the result is to shut down reasonable debates and discussion and dissent about these issues. So as the right becomes more hardcore and, and, and closed off to a discussion about race, the left seems to be also escalating its uh, you know, up, upping its ante. I mean, to get your take on all of that, because I think that there is the moment right now where we look back on our American, if we did it in a good faith way, we'd look back on American history, we'd reevaluate things, we'd talk about our values, we would discuss what it takes to deal with inequality, um, really address many of the failures that, that, that we've had, certainly the conservatives have had on, on race. That discussion seems to have been completely shut down, or at least that's the way it feels to me. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, because we have algorithms and systems in media that privilege, if I can use that word, the loudest and angriest and most extreme voices. I mean, first, cable news, you know, the cable news somehow discovered that the way to the road to profitability uh, lay in mapping brand identity with ideological identity, right? You know, that, that MSNBC caters exclusively to angry progressives and Fox to angry conservatives and uh, you know, and so on. And so uh, there, there's a kind of a, a model there that is constantly giving voice to really some of the most obnoxious people. And Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, uh, uh, Rachel Maddow, they're, they're all perfect encapsulations of uh, or embodiments of, um, of, that, of that phenomenon. On the other hand, you know, you mentioned my conversation with Gail Collins, and uh, I'm kind of proud of the fact that it is one of the single most popular features uh, in the New York Times, because here you have, you know, a, a longtime liberal, mm. longtime conservative having a civil conversation. Um, you know, we try to keep it light um, and uh, uh, not get too far into the policy uh, weeds, but we have our disagreements. And yet somehow the goal is. Uh, to end the conversation as friends, not as not as adversaries. Right. Um, you know what? People love it because mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I don't think it's it's necessarily because either of us is you know such a scintillating literary genius. They love the tone. They love the huh. civility. They love the idea that 
people from opposite sides can get along and have a productive discussion and not end up hating one another. another. And the reason I mentioned that is that I think there's such a hunger in this country for, for more of that. You know, that it's the, it's the missing ingredient. It's what the algorithms aren't quite catching, that people would really like for uh, there to be some kind of spirit of political comedy, that's C-O-M-I-T-Y, not E-D-Y. Um, and, and, and it's just, it's so I, I think that there's a possibility for it. It's just that we haven't alighted on uh, forms of media. I mean, other than great experiments like the bulwark, um, not an experiment anymore, by the way, successes like the Thank bulwark, you. you know, to, to kind of show that, and I don't mean a kind of a dull centrism. That's not what I'm getting right. at. What I'm getting at is an ability to have robust differences without hatred. Um, robust differences with a, still a, a sense of, of common national uh, purpose and, and a sense that you, know, you can have these political differences without describing the other person as morally indecent. Um, and so people want that. We just don't really yet have mature formats for it. Yeah, it, as as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, I, I agree. I do think that there's a hunger for that kind of a discussion. The question is whether there's a market for it. Because you point out almost all the incentive structures go the other way. So that, I would argue uh, yeah, that yeah. there could be, and I'll tell you why. Okay, sure. Um, uh, if you've ever watched some of the better BBC shows, uh, they are um, highly pugnacious. Um they showcase the art of disagreement. You have hosts who aren't just sort of leading their guests on to say what you know what what the audience expects them to say or or, or wants them to say. People watch debates in droves. Um, they enjoy the uh, they enjoy um, intellectual combat at at uh, a high level. And I don't just mean sort of Oxford style debates. Um, I just mean like instances of disagreement between worthy rivals. Um, and yet, you know, I kind of scratch my head and I think, well, hmm. where are those shows on, on TV? You know, how, how often do you really get to see that, that sort of thing happen? And it's kind of absent, I think, from, from most of our national discourse. So I think there could be a genuine market if it's, if it's done really smartly and, and well, um, I, I think it's it's frankly it's waiting for a kind of a, an entrepreneurial creative spirit to to make that happen. And by the way, it is also the antidote to woke, right? Because the problem with wokeism isn't necessarily. I mean, I disagree with it, but it's not like okay, it's an illegitimate point of view. It's a legitimate point of view. The problem I have with with the woke, and it's the same problem I have with the far right, uh, is they want to shut the other side down. Yeah. When you have a debate style format. That that just that just can't happen. The other side gets to speak, um, and that's that's what I think people would really like. And, and I also think it would be it would be refreshing to see a debate like that that did not immediately degenerate into ad hominem attacks. And you know, it was, it's funny that you mentioned this about your conversation with, uh, with with Gail because you would not normally think that a right left debate would lower your stress level, but I, I do I do find that sort of lowering my um, my, my panic level. And, and I think you put your finger on, on why it's like, you realize two intelligent people can disagree over fundamental issues and, and it's okay to have that disagreement. And, 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 and you, and you, and you, and you feel like you've been exposed to ideas as opposed to feel the need to run and take a shower. 
Well, that's, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope that's what, I hope no one reads the conversation and then goes and dashes off to, you know, to disinfect. Um, listen, uh, disagreement is what makes democracy, uh, it, it's the, it's the, it's the seedbed of democracy, right? You know, to say the words, I agree, that forms community, but to say, I disagree, that's what makes democracy. That's what makes freedom, right? The, the ability for, to stand alone and say, uh-uh. You know, I think we should probably end on that note because it's rare that we can end on a positive note on this podcast in this particular environment. So, Brett Stevens, it is really good to have you back. Thank you. I'm honored to be on your podcast. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>